to my little friend. everyone and welcome to episode 47 47 10 years older than me not really years but you know what i mean welcome to episode 47 of say hello to my little friend i am your host glenn peoples this is the podcast that used to be called the beretta cast i used to say welcome to say hello to my little friend also known as the beretta cast but as you may know Uh, The website that used to be called Beretta, beretta beretta-online.com, is no more. This is now the podcast attached to the website and blog RightReason, rightreason.org. It's been a long time since the last episode came out. That won't mean anything to you if you're watching this, uh, sorry, listening to this years down the track. If you're one of these people who sits on the edge of their seat waiting for the next episode to come out, it's been a long wait. I won't bother explaining the reasons for that, but we are back. We are back, and I've got a number of other episodes lined up, so you won't be waiting for long. What I'm going to be doing for the next few episodes is I'm going to be presenting some talks that I gave earlier in 2013 uh, at a church camp, my first time ever as a church camp speaker, Uh, and they wanted me to talk on a theme related to Christian apologetics. And so I decided to give a series of talks on faith and reason. Um, And so that's what I'm going to be presenting here. Uh, There are three talks, actually there were four talks, but one of them is is very similar to a podcast that I've already given. And while I was on this, what I call my speaking tour, I also gave a talk for an organization called Thinking Matters, so I'll be presenting that as well. Now, given that this was a church camp, there was a wide age range of people. It certainly wasn't anything like an academic conference, and for a lot of the people who were attending, this was their first serious introduction to the subject matter. So the next few talks, you shouldn't expect them to be you know, very academic. You, you might regard that as a good thing, you might regard it as a bad thing, but they're very layperson friendly. You know, there's, there's not a whole lot of, of great scholarly depth. They just give what I think, what I hope, uh, is a helpful coverage to someone who wants to come to grips with the subject or perhaps just wants to be reminded or maybe someone who just likes the sound of my voice. But it's, so it, it's, it's very much an introductory course uh, on faith, reason, and Christian apologetics. So the first talk in the series is this one, unsurprisingly, and it's called The Battle of the Mind, Faith and Reason. And basically what I'm going to do here is unpack some thoughts on the relationship between faith and reason in the Christian life. So buckle in. It's good to have you back because we're about to get started on the next episode. Let's go. 
I'm going to start by assuming that most of you, probably all of you, are familiar with the phenomenon called internet memes. Those pictures to which people add their own witty captions. Uh, one of those memes is a character called Confession Bear. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this one, but Confession Bear is a brown bear, a photo of a brown bear leaning over, I think it's a log, and looking at the camera with a very sad look on its face. And he's supposed to look like he's confessing to something that we're all guilty of. Now, here's a popular example of a confession bear meme. The bear is looking at you and he's saying, anytime I hear someone is religious, I automatically think of them as less intelligent. And I think the idea is you're supposed to look at that and sympathize and say, yeah, you know, that's true. <laughs> that's exactly the way that I think. Every now and then, um, you might hear that there is a measurable connection between education and a lack of religious belief. And so the message is that the more educated you are, the more likely you are to not be religious, in fact, to be an atheist. Now, I'm assuming it's a way for certain vocal critics of religion to reassure themselves that they're on the smart team you know, to pass around claims like this. Richard Dawkins, the ever-lovable ever Richard Dawkins, points out with, with an apparent sense of glee the fact that he claims of 42 studies carried out since 1927, all but four found an inverse connection between religion and intelligence. That is, the higher the intelligence, the less likely people are to be religious. And of scientists, it's very important for him to tell us, a very small percentage are religious. And so he's developed this habit of referring to atheists as the brights. Uh, presumably implying that religious people are the opposite, perhaps a bit dim. So are you, are you feeling dumber yet when you hear information like this? You see, sometimes what studies show, put that in inverted quotes, will depend very much on what a person is looking for in a study. Here's a good example. In 2007, a study was conducted where 728 students from Oxford University, were interviewed about their religious beliefs. 49.6% of these students said that they had no religious affiliation. 57.3% of them were prepared to say that they were either agnostic or atheist. So presumably some of them had some religious affiliation in spite of the fact that they didn't believe. But just over half of them were either atheist or agnostic. Now, most polls say that only around 5% of all Britons are in that category of atheist or agnostic. So doesn't it seem that atheists and agnostic non-believers are vastly overrepresented at university? That's what we're supposed to walk away with. So let's stop reading the data there and pretend there isn't any more. This reinforces the claim that educated people are more likely to be atheists, and so Atheism is probably the product of a more educated mind, right? Well, not exactly. You see, whenever you hear claims like this, uh, and they're obviously being made with an agenda, this isn't just a neutral, oh, by the way, the sky is blue and atheists are smarter. Um, there is an agenda going on here, so you should ask how much information is being left out, if anything is. Uh, 
For example, when I relayed those facts to you, I deliberately failed to mention in reference to the study that postgraduate students, that is, those who had successfully passed their undergraduate studies and were now pursuing higher degrees, were noticeably more religious than undergraduate students. So does, does that mean that atheism is perhaps for people who have just discovered higher education and who prematurely think that they know everything? But when they learn a bit more, they calm down, they reconsider God. Or perhaps it means that atheists are overrepresented among those whose results are not good enough to move on to postgraduate study. Now, that's, that's obviously I'm being intentionally provocative and harsh. I'm not saying that's the case. But for some reason, you never hear about those other parts of the findings. You also tend not to hear that it isn't just atheism that starts to show up more commonly among undergraduate students. They're actually experimenting with all kinds of crazy beliefs. I would say all kinds of other crazy beliefs. For example, a World Values survey from 2005 showed something interesting, and I quote, What is more, the survey shows a far stronger correlation between education and certain irrational beliefs. They put irrational in quote marks. For example, only 29.6% of those without even an elementary education believe in telepathy compared with 51.8% of people with degree-level education. Does this mean that atheism and telepathy are the rational beliefs that people adopt once they get a bit of education under their belt? Or maybe the less interesting truth is that people with a degree-level education are creative enough to come up with defenses for strange and perhaps silly beliefs like telepathy, or some might say atheism. By the way, this isn't a religious publication reporting on the study to make atheism look bad. This is New Scientist, where the author admits that the supposed connection between atheism and education, quote, has not only weakened, but reversed, end quote. The same issue features an editorial called Time to Accept That Atheism, Not God, Is Odd, end quote. Now look, of course, None of this even implies vaguely that atheism isn't true or that God exists or anything at all like that. All I'm showing you is that a lot of the rhetoric you might hear about people of faith being less educated or about non-believers being more educated and therefore smarter is actually quite unreliable. However, there's something a little more important that studies on religion and education can show us. There's a view that Religion is what some of us are brought up with, and as long as we stay sheltered and uneducated, maybe we'll stay religious. But if we go out into the world of learning and are exposed to other ideas through higher education, then we're increasing our chances of abandoning religious belief. Now, not only do we now know that that isn't true, but the reverse is the case. Now, oh, look, of course... At the time that a person leaves their family home and they enter the world as a more independent adult, they will rethink a lot of what they grew up with, including their religion, especially as many of the temptations in the world are now more freely available to them. And if they're going to walk away from their religious upbringing, then that's the time when they are most likely to do it, when a person finds their own place in the world. Now, that isn't surprising. This was confirmed in 2007 in a study published with the name Losing My Religion, 
which looked at more than 20,000 people aged 18 to 25 in the United States to see if religious attendance and religious beliefs declined. And they did decline during this stage of life, as you would expect. On the whole, 17% of the young people surveyed gave up their religious affiliation altogether. 68% of them declined in religious attendance, but didn't stop. And that's not hugely shocking. But 17% of them left, which is not all that surprising. As I said, this is when people are going to do it, probably. But what do we see... When we compare religious people, mostly Christians, the study was done in America, after all, what do we see when we compare religious people who go to college or university and those that don't? And here is where the results get interesting. I can't, via the podcast, show you the table of results that I showed to the people to whom I was giving this talk, but let me just highlight some of them for you. So we're looking at decline in church attendance. Now, for those who never went to college at all, 76.2% of them declined in church attendance. Those who went to college but failed, they didn't get a qualification, or they didn't necessarily fail, they just left, 71.5% of them declined, so still high. If they earned an associate degree, like a diploma but not a bachelor's degree, the number comes down, 60.3% declined. If they earned at least a bachelor's degree, 59.2%, so a steady decline. It doesn't say um, what the rate is for people who earned a master's or a PhD. I'm suspecting we would see a similar pattern continuing, that that would continue to decline. The same is true if you look across the columns. So uh, for those to whom their religious beliefs became less important, uh, only 15% of those who earned at least a bachelor's degree fell into that category, whereas those who never even went to college, 23%. And those who lost religious affiliation, again, uh, 15% of those who earned at least a bachelor's degree, more than 20% of those who never went to college. So as the study's author points out, religious decline does indeed vary by education level, but not in the way that most might expect. For all three types of religious decline, it is the respondents who did not go to college who exhibit the highest rates of diminished religiosity. Those with the highest level of education, the respondents with at least a bachelor's degree, are the least likely to curtail their church attendance. Now, isn't that interesting? From one angle, this looks bad for religion because the study shows only people who started out as regularly attending worship, and then we see a chunk of them falling away. But of course, it doesn't show those who later returned to faith. And it also doesn't show those people who embraced God in adulthood. But what the study does show is that education is not a danger to religious belief. Now, as a side observation, and this comes up in the final talk in this series, so I won't delve into it too much here, is also a measurable connection in these results between abandoning religious practice and belief, and adopting a lifestyle that the religion in question probably regards as immoral. Those who got married during this stage in their life were the least likely to fall away, followed by those who were single, followed by those who moved into cohabiting relationships with their partner. Those who had 
any sexual relationships or even just sex, never mind relationships, outside of marriage were much more likely to walk away than those who did not. And those who smoked pot or consumed alcohol to excess similarly contrast with those who do not. But I'll come back to that in a later talk. But here's the summary. If we take all the, the studies that I've alluded to so far, here's the summary of what I think we can justify claiming. Yes, people who are not religious are overrepresented in undergraduate enrollment at university. But that just tells us who went to university. People who believe in UFOs and telepathy are also overrepresented in that group. However, if you look at students who have passed their undergrad studies and are pursuing higher degrees, people with religious convictions become more prominent, not less prominent. In fact, if you look at young religious people, while there is an overall tendency between the ages of 18 and 25 to attend public worship less often, and a minority of those people also abandon their faith, this tendency is more common among those who did not pursue higher education, and it is least common among those who not only pursued higher educa education, but who graduated. In fact, um, I, I tell people, if and when you have children, and you want to do all that you can to see that they follow through in their Christian commitment, what the studies are telling us is that maybe it would help to send them to university. The, the big question looming behind what I'm telling you here is why? Why is this? Why does education actually appear to slow the decline in religious faith? That's what we can see happening. But why? Isn't faith supposed to be the opposite of reason? Reason is all about facts, science, logical thinking, and so on. But religious faith, we are told, is blind believing without any good evidence or reason, right? Just because we're told what to believe. And that brings me to the point of this talk. It's encouraging to look at facts and figures that show positive relationships between faith and education. But the point of all this is not just to make us feel better because we're not dummies after all, although for what it's worth, we're not dummies after all. I want us to think hard about what it means to be a person of faith and to think hard about faith and reason. There are people walking around in the world today who think that religion is for those who choose faith over reason, or faith instead of reason, and that embracing God is an excuse to stop thinking and to just believe. Here's a quote from John McKay, the one-time president of Princeton Seminary. Commitment without reflection, is fanaticism. Commitment without reflection is fanaticism. I actually found that quote in a small book called Your Mind Matters by the late great John Stott. And in the section where he, he reproduced that quote, he also reproduced an, an anecdote to illustrate the point. He was at a conference in Sweden at one point. He didn't say what the conference was about, but with him at the conference, one of the attendees was a young man from Melbourne, Melbourne, Australia. Uh, he was a student from the University of Melbourne, apparently. And while he was there, news broke that a protest among students, a student protest, those wonderful things, had, had begun in Melbourne. And this guy was 
He was a bit annoyed. He thought, oh, if I was back in Melbourne, I would be a part of that. I would so take part in that protest. I wish I, wish I was there. I wonder what it's about. <laughs> and he didn't even know what the protest was about, but he would have been willing to take part in it. That's commitment without reflection. That is fanaticism. The very nature of being a fanatic is that you're committed to a cause, but your commitment is not matched by good reasons. And biblical Christianity is not fanaticism. You may have heard, although I wish you hadn't, you may have heard someone say that it's true that they can't show that their belief in Jesus is true or reasonable, but that you should stop challenging them Leave them alone because to them it's a matter of faith and therefore you should just respect whatever they believe. That is neither a biblical nor a sensible way of thinking about faith. If it were, if that were the right way of thinking about faith, then there's no real difference between believing in Jesus and believing in Vishnu. If faith means embracing that which fills us with joy and not stopping to think about why we believe it, then it doesn't matter what you believe. If I say to you that I have faith that something is true, then you are perfectly entitled to ask what reasons I have for that faith. And if I have no reasons, then what I have is a case of blind faith. Fortunately, it's a condition that can be treated. And one of the ways that you might go about treating it is by looking at what the Bible and what Christian history has to say about the nature of Christian faith. And here is where uh, we can be introduced to this animal called natural theology. Now, what is that? Natural theology is the practice of using the created world to see evidence for its creator. And that's to be construed very broadly. Now, Johann Kepler, you probably have heard of Johann Kepler, Born 1571, died 1630. Now, he was a pioneering astronomer, as well as a conservative Lutheran. He almost went into the ministry as a pastor, but he was called to teach at the university. And he decided to accept that call rather than uh, going into the ministry, because he saw that exploring the beauty and complexity of the universe was to explore, study, and teach others about the glorious handiwork of God. Here's a quote from Kepler. I was merely thinking God's thoughts after him. Since we astronomers are priests of the highest God in regard to the book of nature, he said, it benefits us to be thoughtful not of the glory of our minds, but rather, above all else, of the glory of God. Now, the book of nature is a phrase that is used to contrast different types of revelation. The Bible is one of the books of God. Special revelation, it's sometimes called. But the universe, the world around us, is called the book of nature. General revelation from God. Numerous theologians, scientists, and philosophers who have been Christians have drawn on the complexity and beauty of creation to point to the Creator. Fred Hoyle, himself an atheist, was so struck by the absurdly unlikely coincidences that science encounters, exclaimed that, and I quote, a super intellect has monkeyed with physics, as well as with chemistry and biology. This way of seeing God 
in the world is, is actually a biblical idea. You've probably all heard Psalm 19 quoted numerous times in songs and services. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The Apostle Paul uh, said something which sounded quite different, but makes a similar point in Romans chapter 1, where he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. End quote. So the existence and power of God can be detected by human reason so clearly that God is justified in judging people for not faithfully responding to the evidence. Now, apart from natural theology, there's also what's called historical apologetics. This is where we look at the historical events surrounding the person of Jesus of Nazareth as evidence of his uniqueness and his divine mission. On the third day after Jesus' death, when women returned from the tomb, did the other disciples just take their word for it? Well, of course not. They went and investigated for themselves, and Jesus later came and showed himself to them alive again. Theirs, at least, we can say, was not a blind faith. And our faith in the risen Jesus doesn't have to be blind either. Now, of course, in the 21st century, we can't go and investigate the empty tomb as eyewitnesses. But that doesn't mean we can't investigate the historical reliability of the Gospels, and especially uh, the historical fact of the resurrection. Now, the second talk in this series was where I covered what's referred to as the minimal facts approach to the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. I, I won't uh, be including that as part of this series because I've actually already given that talk in the podcast. So if you're interested, you can go back and listen to it here. I'll give one more biblical example, this time from Acts chapter 19, when Paul was speaking in Ephesus. I'll quote it here. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, what was Paul doing? I mean, you can call it evangelism or preaching if you really want to, but how does the book of Acts describe it? How did people hear the word of God from Paul? Well, two words are repeated there, reasoning and persuading. Paul was giving a rational account of what he believed about Jesus and why he believed it. And that's what reason does in the Christian faith. It tells us what we believe, and it tells us why we believe it. So let's start with that first point. Reason tells us what we believe. Now, this may not be quite as effective 
this exercise that I'm going to get you to take part in now. Uh, it was good with a live audience, but join me in this exercise. Have some faith right now. Believe. Trust. Okay, you ready? Go. You can't, can you? I mean, you can't, you can believe that something is true. You can trust in someone, but you can't just believe or just trust. Our belief, our trust always attaches to something in reality. Most of the time, it is reason that tells us what it is we're believing or trusting in. And you might think, no, I'm a Christian. The Bible tells me what I believe. Or, no, I'm a Catholic. The church tells me what I believe. That's not true. I'm going to try to persuade you of that briefly. Uh, you know what John 3.16 says, right? It's a very well-known verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him won't perish, but they'll have everlasting life. Now that means that God is a ham and cheese sandwich, right? Or maybe it means that God wants us to take up weapons and kill unbelievers. Clearly not. The use of reason, God-given reason, places limits on what we can legitimately find in any given passage of Scripture. It also places limits on how we can understand what the church says to us. Taking the material that we find in Scripture and formulating and expressing what we believe, taking understanding its implications, figuring out what that means we don't believe, all of this is an exercise in using our reason. And that's the discipline of theology. Now, of course, we're not expected to do that alone. We're part of a, of a wider community, the church, which has got huge resources, both uh, historical and resources today, of people who can help us figure these things out. But whether we like it or not, everything that we receive in our minds, everything that we think about, gets filtered through our own ability to think which we call our reason. So reason tells us what we believe. But secondly, reason tells us why we believe. Of course, it doesn't matter what your holy book is, the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Quran. Well, I mean, it matters in one sense, but for the point I'm making now, it doesn't matter. You can use reason assisted by your own faith community to figure out what it means. Right? No matter what text you're using, you can do that. Why believe in one of these things rather than the other? Why? And the why is the next important reason that we should use reason. Reason tells us why we believe this and not that. Reason tells us that we should drink medicine and not poison when we're sick. Reason is what helps us decide between competing theories and science. Reason tells us why we should believe that Christianity is true or why we should believe that it's false. If we recognize that reason is so important when it comes to the main mundane things in everyday life, how could it possibly become suddenly unimportant when it comes to the big questions of life? Is there a purpose to our existence? Is God real? Does the life that I lead now make a difference in eternity? Is death the end? Is Jesus who he claimed to be? Did he rise from the dead? Now, if there are right answers to these questions, don't you want to find them rather than wrong answers? With few exceptions, 
Christianity has always held out reason as an essential, God-given tool to reach the most important truths about God. Theologians like Anselm and Aquinas declared that they believe in order to understand. Now, there's a whole lot to be unpacked in that, but the point is their understanding was an integral part of their faith life. When Martin Luther was on trial, they called it a diet, he uttered his famous words, Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, then he began that speech which ended with, I cannot, I will not, I cannot recant. Unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason. Philosopher John Locke described reason as the candle of the Lord and described faith like this, and I quote, Faith is nothing but a firm assent of the mind, which, if it be regulated, is as is our duty, cannot be afforded to anything but upon good reason, and so cannot be opposite to it. He that believes without having any reason for believing may be in love with his own fancies, but neither seeks the truth as he ought, nor pays the obedience due to his Maker, who would have him use those discerning faculties he has given him to keep him out of mistake and error. Now that's a very standard view among Christian thinkers over the centuries. Faith and reason work together. There should be good reasons for the things that you have faith in. When I asked you earlier to just believe, you didn't know what to believe. But let's say that I asked you to pick something and just believe it. Okay, so just believe that the earth is flat. Well, you still couldn't do that. You can't directly control what you believe. At least if you're, if you're mentally healthy, you can't directly control what you believe. Belief requires reasons. There is this, I guess, fairly popular, nice-sounding notion that everyone just has this right to believe whatever they want. If you find yourself disagreeing with somebody, it's thought of as a kind of noble gesture by some people to say, well, even though we don't see eye to eye, I respect your beliefs. You've got a right to your beliefs. It's also interesting that both Christians and atheists over the centuries have, quite rightly, I think, thought that that was absolute nonsense. William Clifford, the outspoken atheist of the 19th century, very famously declared, it is wrong always, everywhere, and for anyone to believe anything on insufficient evidence, end quote. Now, some Christians have rejected that, I think, because they construe evidence far too narrowly in terms of, I don't know, maybe empirical data. But provided we think of evidence broadly enough to include our own experience, even experience that we can't reproduce for other people, I think Clifford was absolutely right. And for a Christian perspective, recall what Locke said. I quoted them earlier. In effect, he said, God gave you a mind to figure out what you should believe. Use it. So contrary to the sentimental notion you might have, it's not a virtue to be a person of faith. That is, someone who strongly holds religious beliefs. That's not virtuous by itself. By itself, that doesn't tell us very much at all. What if you're a person who worships cows or rocks? What if you believe that 
if you die while killing unbelievers, you go to paradise. What if someone says to you, why do you hold to your religion and not mine? What if you're a Christian who wants to share the gospel with somebody who holds to another religion? Why should they even consider what you have to say? Because they've already got a religion. Could you really think that it's appropriate to tell them there are no reasons to give you, but look, just consider it, or as the Mormons might say, wait for that burning in your bosom to help you decide whether or not this is true. Just think about Jesus, ponder it. He sure sounds nice, doesn't he? Now, why should you listen to someone who says that to you? Why should someone listen to you and not to the Baha'i preacher or a Buddhist or a Muslim? Remember that St. Paul spent time reasoning with people and persuading them. This isn't just Paul's personal preference. This is the way that the New Testament writers urge their readers to handle the faith in the presence of those who don't believe. Look at what Peter told Christians in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through to 8. He said, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these are all the things here that contribute to and constitute a full, healthy, effective faith. Knowledge is essential to it. Imagine if someone said, look, you can still have a perfectly good, healthy faith. Just take out steadfastness and brotherly affection, or take out love, or take out godliness. You'd say, but you can't do that. You're diminishing the Christian life. The Christian life requires all these things. It also requires knowledge. People say, look, you, you, don't, you think about the heart, not the head. Rubbish. <laughs> we don't want to be headless Christians. Knowledge is an essential part of the Christian life, just like love and self-control. And, and together, all these things will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ. Now, Peter, again, Peter is big on the idea that knowledge and understanding are crucial. Uh, one of the, the famous uh, texts that Christian apologists use all the time is 1 Peter 3, 14, verse 14 and 15. I heard someone recently try to argue that this isn't about giving reasons for faith. They're wrong. This is what Peter said. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Did you notice that Peter tells people to give a reason for their faith to anyone who asks? So you need to have a reason for your faith, otherwise you can't give one. If today one of your friends who is not a Christian, and obviously that question that I'm asking now has relevance to people who are Christians. If one of your friends said to you, look, I want to consider whether or not this whole Jesus thing might be right after all. Look, I'm, I'm really open here. Please give me some reasons for thinking that it's true. Now, you rarely get a, such an open uh, opportunity like that. That's gold. But could you have done it? Could you say, yeah, sure, I'm happy to give you some reasons for why you should believe as I do. Here are some right now. 
Could you have done what this passage in, in Peter's letter calls his readers to do? Could you do that? So where are we? And remember, this was an introductory talk at camp. So this kind of sets the tone for the next few days. So I say, okay, so where are we and where are we going uh, over the next few days? I said, so firstly, the evidence doesn't really tell us that faith is the enemy of education or knowledge. That is a myth. Secondly, finding rational reasons to believe is biblical. Thirdly, without reason, you wouldn't even know what you believed. Fourthly, reason tells us why we should believe what we do and not something else. Fifthly, Christianity has never taught that faith is the virtue of just believing things with no good reason. That's an absurd caricature. Fifthly, Scripture actually calls us to have reasons for what we believe and to be willing and able to share those reasons with those who ask. Now, over the next couple of talks, I'm going to be looking at some of those reasons. The next talk is on the moral argument for theism. Now, I know that a long time ago in the history of this podcast, I gave a two-part uh, presentation on the moral argument. But this talk is sufficiently different that I'm happy to give another one. So the next talk is going to be on the moral argument uh, for God's existence. The talk after that, as I said, was actually on the minimal facts approach to defending the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. And I've already discussed that in a previous podcast, so feel free to go back uh, to listen to it. But the next talk after that is, it's the talk I used in closing the camp because I didn't want to get people all enthusiastic about, right, I'm going to go out and, and win all these arguments uh, without preparing them for disappointment. And so the talk at the end of the camp was about why is it, if there are such good reasons to believe as we do, why aren't people just flocking to us when they hear these arguments? You know, why do so many people who are critics of religion reject these arguments in the way that they do? What are the reasons for that? And so I'll be saying a bit more about that. So those are the, the next two podcast episodes. Uh, and following that, um, well, I could just let you find out. Yeah, I'll let you find out. But it's good to be back back in the saddle you can expect the next episode in maybe a week or so and we're going to be back in regular business from now on i, I know that there's been a very long break uh, but I, th I think it's important to get back into this i want to get the the episodes flowing again so feel free to visit the website which is now rightreason.org forget the word beretta it's got nothing to do with the site anymore feel free to visit the site. Go to the contact form. Make contact with me. It's always nice to hear from listeners. Let me know things that you'd like me to discuss on the podcast. Check out the blog where I discuss these issues and more. But for now, I will sign off this episode. This is Glenn Peoples saying farewell, and I will see you next time in the not-too-distant future in the next episode of... Shout out to my little friend!